0: Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Before we start today, a very quick apology. I know this episode is slightly late, but I've been on a business trip in the USA and Mexico, and I simply haven't had time to record it. But, now, here we are. So, chapter 77, The Highest Bidder Severed. Publius Helvius Pertinax rose from the humble beginnings to sit on the throne of the Caesars, but his three-month reign marked merely the beginning of years of civil war after the murder of commodus pertinax was born on the first of august one twenty six in the ligurian town of alba pompeia modern alba roughly thirty-five miles southeast of turin in northwest italy his father helvius successus was a freedman but pertinax rose through the ranks in rome and eventually governed a number of the empire's most important provinces including britannia he managed to survive the reign of Commodus by not getting involved in any conspiracies, until he agreed to become emperor after the final successful one. He was the only one of Marcus Aurelius's trusted ministers left, so he must have had a pretty acute survival instinct. Once it was known the plot had been successful, the Praetorian prefect, Quintus Letus, went to fetch Pertinax, When he saw the guards arriving, the city prefect thought his time had run out and that Commodus had finally tired of him. He told the men to carry out their task and execute him quickly. The guards, though, immediately declared him emperor. Pertinax was so nervous about the potential repercussions of sticking his neck out that he sent a trusted ally to see Commodus's corpse. He wanted to be absolutely, 100%, totally, utterly certain the emperor was dead before committing to anything. Letus had promised the Praetorians a very, very large sum of money if they supported Pertinax, so they were happy and sat back waiting for their cash, while Letus went to the Senate and demanded they accept Pertinax as Emperor. The Senate house was locked, so Pertinax had to make his equivalent of inauguration speech at a nearby temple. He went through with the usual fiction, stating he didn't want the honour and certainly wasn't keen on having so much power. As was traditional, though, he allowed himself to be persuaded – Publius Helvius Pertinax thus became the 19th Emperor of Rome. Commodus' name, like that of Domitian, was damned and all his statues torn down and destroyed. His titles were erased from the public monuments. A new day and a new year had begun. Maybe this was a new start for the empire. Maybe the craziness and chaos was gone. But no, Pertinax would last just 87 days and his successor would not even last this long. 193 AD would go down in history as the year of the five emperors, even though only three were actually ratified by the Senate. In January, though, everyone thought things would be okay. Commodus had just been a blip. The age of good, sane government was back. Everyone thought that things would now go back to normal. Once he became emperor, Pertinax came up with half the money promised to the Praetorians by selling off all the luxuries Commodus had accumulated including a large number of slaves. His big mistake, though, was that he proclaimed they had been paid in full. Even though half of the promised donative was still more than they normally earned in a year, the guards were very unhappy that this old man, who wouldn't have the top job if it wasn't for them, was going back on the deal. Unfortunately, Commodus had spent all the cash, and there was none left for the greedy soldiers. Pertinax cut taxes and slashed the imperial household budget in half, and granted lands to people who would improve them and increase the crop yields. In a very short time, Pertinax became a much-loved leader for the people of Rome, if not for the Praetorian Guard. While all this was happening, the three most important governors in the empire heard what was going on. We've already met them, and they have an important part to play in our story. For the time being, though, Clodius Albinus in Britain, Septimius Severus in Pannonia, and Pescennius Niger in Syria, were all happy with Pertinax as the new emperor. Pertinax was an old man, and each of these three generals was considering what might happen after he died. What would be his plan? Who would be his successor? The new emperor had refused the titles of Augusta for his wife and Caesar for his son. This indicated to the ambitious generals that the age of nominated adopted successors was back each thought they might be Trajan to Pertinax's Nerva. Unfortunately for them, and for Rome, Pertinax did not quite last as long as everyone had hoped. The three commanders would have to consider their options a little earlier than they might have expected. Poor old Pertinax just didn't see the trouble coming. He did all the right things, trying to eradicate the corruption which had been rife under Commodus. This was clearly the correct thing to do, but inevitably those who had done well under the previous regime were nervous. Pertinax, though, didn't carry out a purge of any sort. He simply tried to do the right things and set an example by which the people should live. This was a far better revenge than any form of righteous tyranny. People exiled by Commodus were allowed back. Prisoners were released. Property stolen by Commodus was given back to its owners. Unburied executed senators were laid to rest properly in their family tombs. The Praetorian Guard, though, were highly annoyed with Pertinax. They were so used to Commodus giving them what they wanted, they were never going to let poor old Pertinax get away with not paying them what they thought they deserved. About 300 of them went to the palace and confronted the Emperor. Letus, seeing which way the wind was blowing, made himself scarce. Historians are divided about whether he knew about what happened next, or whether, even, he instigated it. Cassius Dio tells us that Pertinax faced his accusers bravely and honestly. With only his freedman advisor Electus at his side, he spoke to the guards about what it meant to be in the service of Rome. For a while, it seemed that the Praetorians were impressed and may back down. But no, one of them took out his sword and swung at the Emperor. Electus dived in to save him and killed a couple of the soldiers, but he couldn't take them all on. He was hacked to pieces, as was Pertinax. The son of a freedman had risen to the highest position possible within the Roman Empire through hard work and competence. He was killed because of greed and corruption. It was not a good sign. Poor Pertinax didn't deserve his fate, but worse was to come. What the Praetorians did next almost beggars belief. Letus returned, rather conveniently, and restored the Praetorians to some sort of order the father of Pertinax's wife approached him, indicating he might like a turn at the top job. Some of the Praetorians were a bit concerned the old emperor's father-in-law might want to avenge Pertinax's death. Clearly, if this man, whose name was Sulpicianus, was to get the top job, he needed to be beholden to them. They thought that maybe another candidate would be better. A couple of them went down to the forum and announced the emperorship was up for grabs. Who wanted it and how much were they prepared to pay? Most of the senators thought the whole thing far too shameful, but one man decided that, hey, someone had to get the job, so it may as well be me. He was a senator who we've already met named Didius Julianus. His wife was keen to be an empress, so she egged him on. Sulpicianus put in the first bid. The Praetorians decided it wasn't enough and shouted they needed a better offer. Julianus had just arrived at the Praetorian camp and shouted a higher bid over the walls. The guards decided it still wasn't enough. Sulpicianus raised his bid, the guards told Julianus the new price, and he raised his bid too. The guards now began to see cash before their eyes and shouted back to Sulpicianus that he had been outbid again. Sulpicianus offered twenty thousand sesterces per head, twenty thousand for every member of the guard. This was eight times what the average soldier earned in a year. Julianus then offered 25,000 sesterces per head, ten times the average yearly earnings. The Praetorians thought they'd better quit while they were ahead and accepted this offer. They then proclaimed Didius Julianus the new emperor of the Roman world. Julianus agreed, but proving he wasn't an entirely bad man, demanded that Sulpicianus and his family must not be harmed. The guards agreed, and Julianus became emperor. The senate was not a happy place, but the senators reluctantly agreed persuaded probably by the unusually large number of soldiers standing around them didius julianus paid up in full and was the legitimately recognized emperor of rome three governors out in the provinces heard the news they had been happy to accept good old pertinax but they were not going to allow a virtual nobody like didius julianus whose career had been good but not that good to rule the empire just because he had paid for the privilege Oh no, they were not, and nor were the legions they commanded. In April 193, or soon after, Clodius Albinus, Septimius Severus and Pescennius Niger were all hailed emperor by their legionaries. It was time to spring into action. Only one of them, however, acted immediately to try and make sure he would be the winner. Didius Julianus was now emperor, but virtually nobody really wanted him to be. The people booed at him. The Senate loathed what had happened and the Provincials were not going to stand for it. The Praetorian Guard began to realise what they had done. They were beholden to this man, but they were also ashamed of him. The fact that Didius Julianus had purchased the empire was an insult to Rome. Julianus heard the Provincial legions were not accepting his reign, but he decided he'd paid for the honour of being emperor and he was not going to give up without a fight. He was an experienced commander and besides, Niger and Albinus were a long way from Rome. Only Severus in Pannonia was close enough to challenge him soon, and he would have to rush if he was going to get to Rome before Julianus was ready. But rush, Severus most certainly did. Julianus prepared to turn Rome into an armed camp. Walls were built, and war elephants were procured to scare Severus's men. Severus was declared an enemy of the people. But Julianus also decided basically to beg him not to storm in and take over. The senators managed to convince him this was a far from honourable path, and he finally decided not to. It was clear though that here was no emperor. The writing was on the wall. It was just a question of which of the three generals would come out on top. Nobody gave Didius Julianus a hope. Septimius Severus acted very quickly. It's not certain that he had previously planned a bid for the empire should Pertinax not last long, but the rapidity with which he went for it indicates he had probably thought long and hard about it. He stood before his troops, who loved him anyway, and made a great speech. He was acclaimed emperor, as he expected to be. Severus was a very cunning man. He communicated with Albinus, who was the youngest of the three rebelling provincial generals. He offered to name Albinus Caesar and therefore make him his successor if he supported Severus in his claim for the throne. Albinus apparently agreed, so Severus had the support of most of the armies of the Western Empire. Severus and the three Pannonian legions, very quickly, began to march on Rome. It's estimated they managed 20 miles a day, and were in the north of Italy in no time. Julianus had the few soldiers under his command, the Praetorian Guard and the urban cohort, prepare for battle. He realised, though, he didn't have much hope, so he sent some senators to persuade the Pannonian troops to leave Severus and come over to his side. He also sent some people to assassinate Severus. Unfortunately for Julianus, the killing squad failed completely, and the senators listened to Severus tell them that Didius Julianus was a dead man walking. Very sensibly, they changed sides to support the general. Julianus then offered to share power with Severus, who laughed and refused. Septimius Severus stopped a few miles from Rome and sent word he would not punish the Praetorian guard if they gave up the people who had killed Pertinax. Letus and the others were handed over very quickly and Severus had them all killed. All this would be a bit surprising to the Senate. Most of the senators had assumed if there were to be a new emperor to challenge Julianus it would be Piscenius Niger. But Niger didn't seem to see the need for speed it took him two months to get his legions marching towards Rome. Didius Julianus was left in the palace, alone and abandoned. On the 1st of June 193, the Senate declared that Septimius Severus was now the lawful emperor of Rome, and Julianus was an enemy of the state. Poor Julianus was found, as Cassius Dio says, alone and deserted by everyone, in the palace, and was beheaded. His last words were, "'What evil have I done?' whom have I killed? He'd reigned for just 66 days and his head was on a spike. Severus handed over the body to his wife. He had her stripped of her title of Augusta, but he didn't have her killed. Lucius Septimius Severus was delighted. He hadn't had to take Rome by force and he'd been declared emperor. Now his competitors for the throne would have to fight him, not Julianus. The first thing he did was call the Praetorian Guard into a big field and order them to disband. Yep, he abolished the Praetorian Guard. The murderers of Pertinax were put to death, and the rest of the Praetorians were banned from coming within a 100 miles of Rome. The exiles were delighted to escape with their lives, and ran away very quickly. The new Praetorian Guard was made up of provincial soldiers, and was at least twice the size. Now the Emperor did not just have a bodyguard cohort, he had a personal army. This suited Septimius Severus down to the ground the Praetorian Prefect became an even more important office, responsible for finances as well as simply being a captain of the guard. But Severus was only one of three men who wanted the throne. He'd secured the loyalty of Albinus for now, but it was highly likely that this would not last, particularly given the fact that Severus had no intention of allowing Albinus to succeed him. He had sons, and they were going to follow in his footsteps. Severus was not going to be content with gaining the imperial rose for himself. He was going to found a new dynasty. Both Niger and Albinus were powerful and dangerous. It was by no means certain who would come out on top. So, who were these three men? Why were they the ones who battled it out for control of the empire? When we looked at 69 AD, the year of the four emperors, we did a quick introduction to the contestants – 193, the year of the five emperors, was a bit different. Pertinax was widely accepted by everyone except the Praetorian Guard. Julianus was accepted by nobody but the Praetorian Guard. The contest only really started once these two were gone, so this time we have three contestants. Again, let's introduce them in age order. Gaius Pasquenius Niger was born sometime around 135 to an Italian equestrian family. He was in his 40s when Commodus brought him into the Senate. He rose to become consul in 190 and was then sent to be governor of Syria, one of the most important of the provinces. He was very popular in his province and he laid on quite magnificent games for the populace. He was in Syria in 193 when he allowed his troops to declare him emperor. Lucius Septimius Severus was born in Lepsis Magna in North Africa in 145. He had some influential relatives and gained the rank of senator a few years before Niger. It's claimed by some sources that he was dark-skinned, but portraits of him seem to show a pretty standard Mediterranean complexion. He may have been born in Africa, but his family were Roman and so was he. He was also a consul in 190 and then sent to be governor of Upper Pannonia. Decimus Clodius Septimius Albinus was born around 150, also in North Africa, from a far more ancient, important family than the other two. He was appointed to the Senate by Marcus Aurelius. He was consul before the other two commanders. Albinus was appointed governor of Britain in 191, where he put down rebellions among the troops. Like Niger, he was popular, and like Severus, he was fiercely single-minded. When he heard about the death of Pertinax, he declared to his troops that the Republic should be restored, and went on an anti-monarchy rant. Now, though, Septimius Severus was in pole position. He'd got the jump on his rivals and was now the incumbent. Now all he had to do was eliminate the competition. He'd already neutralised the threat from Albinus by offering him the role of Caesar, so Pescennius Niger was the first tactic. Almost two months passed after the death of Pertinax before Niger even started to get his troops moving towards Rome. In this time, Severus had moved his troops from the Danube to Rome killed and replaced Julianus, hung around a bit and moved towards the east. Niger had done two thirds of nothing. Niger, it seems, was the ideal second in command. He was disciplined and magnanimous as a governor, but he didn't have the drive and ruthless ambition that Severus so clearly displayed. Preparing for the inevitable battle, Severus marched his troops towards Antioch. Niger slowly marched his towards Rome. The whole of the east was behind him, and with a bit more urgency he probably would have won. He had his legions, including many battle-hardened veterans. He had the support of the entire east, and he was backed by the client kings on his borders. If he had been ruthless and single-minded, he probably would have won. Septimius Severus pretended that Niger was his friend, and there would be no war, even though they were both preparing for war. As he marched east, he kept writing to Niger, telling him what great friends they were and how they couldn't possibly have anything to fight about. They were mates. Julianus was dead. All Niger had to do was accept Severus as emperor. The only problem was, though, that Niger had no intention of doing this. The two armies met near the village of Issus, and Niger was defeated. He tried to flee to Antioch, but was caught by some of Severus's supporters and beheaded. His head was sent to Severus, who smiled and sent it on to the city of Byzantium, whose citizens were still supporting Niger. His head was put on a spike outside the city walls, but the city wouldn't surrender. The people of Byzantium would have preferred to see the head of Septimius Severus on a spike. Severus set up a siege on Byzantium, whose inhabitants eventually gave up after two years. Severus had the walls destroyed, and the city turned into an unimportant backwater. It remained this way until 120 years later, the Emperor Constantine thought that the city, straddling as it did Europe and Asia, might make a great site for his new capital. Byzantium, now called Istanbul, would be the capital of the empire for over a thousand years and would be known to the world as Constantinople. The Emperor was now confident of success. He had gained nine more legions and was now much stronger than Clodius Albinus. His nomination of Albinus as his successor had simply been a ploy to allow him to deal with one rival at a time. He never had any intention of actually allowing someone from outside his family to become emperor after him. In 195 he named the elder of his two sons Caesar. Albinus couldn't allow this slur to go unpunished and he had himself declared Augustus. He had considerable support within the senate. The ancient body did not entirely trust Severus. Encouraged by this backing, Albinus sailed across the Channel and with his armies marched towards Rome. In the next chapter, we'll find out what happens when Clodius Albinus challenges Septimius Severus for the throne of the Empire. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.